Sunday now since it's so we're good. So we're going to have a one last look at 1 Peter before we head into Advent this morning. So I'll invite you, if you have a Bible, to open up to 1 Peter chapter 3. And we've been in kind of this heart section of the letter now for, I think, about five weeks, five, maybe six weeks here. And during this really core section, uh, Peter has challenged us to embrace our position as outsiders, as strangers, and as exiles in society. This is a thing that comes right from, uh, Jesus talked about it, it goes through this letter, and right up today, that if we follow Jesus, and if we do the things he said and live the life that he's called us to, it doesn't matter what culture, what era, what time you're living in, it will look strange. And it will kind of separate you from the world's culture. And so he said, embrace that. It's okay. You're not of this world. You've got a, another world to look forward to. Embrace being an exile or a stranger in this world. And he went on to say, uh, even though Jesus has conquered death and his work is complete, sin is still present in this world and we need to be aware of it. We need to recognize that, that every moment, every day, there is, there is a battle raging for the desires of our hearts and the, the very kind of being of our souls. So he says, fight like a soldier against those sinful desires. And he said, also remember, so first, live as a stranger, embrace that. Uh, remember that there, there's still sin and you need to still battle against sin. Don't be complacent in that. But also remember that we live as ambassadors for Jesus, that our, our lives are lived as representatives of his. And so every place we go, every moment we go, we are displaying to the world around us what's most important. And if Jesus is most important, then we want our lives to point to Jesus. He said our whole lives are, are testimonies to the transformative effect of the gospel. I can tell you my, lives, my life has been transformed. But it also speaks to the truth of the gospel. And then Peter kind of got down, not, not totally into the weeds, but he started to give us some really practical examples. He said, first, submit to human authorities for the Lord's sake. God's in control. Submit to your authorities unless they tell you explicitly to break God's law. Submit to authority. Then he brought it home even a little bit more, and he said, servants or, or workers, submit to your masters, not just the ones that treat you well, but the ones that treat you bad as well. And last week, as we looked at the beginning of chapter 3, he said, Wives, submit to your husbands, whether they believe in Jesus or not. He said, Husbands, care for your wives as equal partners, as co-heirs of the, of the inheritance, so that your prayers will not be hindered. And all of this, all of this comes under that, that root from chapter 2, verse about 11 or 12 or so, where he says, We live our lives this way so that people will come to know Jesus. That's the point. We live counterculturally in a way that the culture looks at and says, wait a minute, I think, I think I want that. Now, over the past weeks, I've said a number of times that, that we as followers of Jesus, as we obey the word, as we try to submit to Jesus' leadership in our lives, we're kind of moving farther and farther to the fringes of society. Now, what used to be kind of the common held core beliefs of, of the church and society lined up a lot better than they do now. Think about relationships and, and marriage and the individual versus the, 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 the group. All, all these things, the, the biblical views are, are sliding to the sides. And as I was preparing this week, I, I came across a, a blog that kind of summarized some recent research on the way that culture perceives the church. And it's eye-opening and, and shows us some of the challenges that the church will 
face going forward. Now, let me just say that the data might be a little bit more from our neighbors to the south. However, we cannot throw out American data, especially when it comes to religion, because typically Canada is about five to ten years ahead. So if, if religion and Christianity and faith is on the decline in the States, which it is, we've been there for a while. Okay? So we can't throw out this data. The general summary that this blog made said this, the younger you are, and the more unchurched you are, the less favorably you see the church. Kind of on the flip side, the older you are, and the more churched you are, the better you see the church. Okay, so if you're not a part of it, it doesn't look so good. Kind of the summary, I guess. A couple of data points that really help us to see what the church is up against, and it's a little bit bleak, but we've been saying Ephesians chapter 3 is our benediction for the whole year, and you remember, at the end of that, it says that you know, we, we, we trust in the God who can do more than all that we ask or imagine. And so we cling to that promise, and then we look at these stats. The first is this. Only 21% of non-Christian people have a positive perception of the local church. One in five. I would guess it's lower in Canada and in Canada. Less than one in five, 21%. Non-Christian people have a positive perception of the church. Now, kind of on the flip side, 80% of practicing Christians have a positive view of the church. There's a dichotomy there. We think this is so great. People who don't come to church think this is a, this is a disaster. How do we bridge that gap? And I was going to say get those numbers closer, but let's get up to 21% instead of bring down the 80%. The second one significant as well, half of non-Christian Americans don't trust local pastors. Now that, that stings a little bit. But I think here, here's what it's kind of saying. There was a time in the not-so-distant past when the church was seen as, as a good for the culture. That we, that we had something to offer, that we, that we spoke into how marriage could be done and relationships could be done, how finances could be held, that we, we helped care for kids, we helped all these things, and that's just kind of going by the wayside. And social media hasn't helped that when we have, you know, several kind of well-publicized falls of pastors, right? So we're not seen as trustworthy anymore by half. Again, on the contrast is 85% of Christians trust their pastors. That's better, I guess, a little bit. The third one I want to mention is millennials. Millennials think that the local church is detached from the real issues people are facing. We're not even talking the right language. We're not, we, we're not even having anything to offer to what really matters in the world. And so let me, let me put this out there. A couple of millennials in the room, so. If you ever get that sense from this church that we're speaking the wrong thing, pull out your phone, email elders at Trinity and say, listen, I, I think we need to hear a little bit more on this. I, I, I really need some tools on how to deal with this. Can you get there? Because I don't want to be wasting any of our time speaking to things that don't matter. Right? Now, all three of these things should give us pause and kind of make it as quiet in the room as it is. Some of the reputation the church has earned, we can't, we can't neglect to see that. There's a reason that people think Christians are judgmental and 
hateful and don't like other people and exclusive in a bad way and all these things. And sometimes we are judgmental and hateful and exclusive in a bad way and not good neighbors and not good community leaders and community participants. So there are ways and spaces that we, we as the church need to bring some repentance and humility and reconciliation to this conversation to try and bridge the gaps here. But there's also a lot of misunderstanding, I think, here. So we need to, to, to speak better into community, to, to step out and remind people that we're here to show them Jesus, to show them life, to bring life. So the question is this, then, how do followers of Jesus live in a world that's skeptical at best and hostile at worst? towards what we say we believe. How do followers of Jesus live in a world that's suspect at best and hostile at worst towards us? Well, you know what? Peter gets there today. So let's jump in. First Peter chapter 3, we're at verse 8. The first thing he tells the church to do is to care for one another. That's what he says, verse 8. Finally, which means he's concluding a thought, which takes us back to the middle of chapter 2. Finally, all of you, just in case you fit out of somebody living under authority or, or, or aren't a servant or aren't a husband or wife, if you somehow dodged your way through loopholes to get out of everything I've just said, Peter says, all of you, pay attention. So we're all here. Be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another and be compassionate and humble. Now there's a, there's a sense that this isn't anything new from Peter. He just keeps kind of drilling us with the same thing. How do we lay, live in the, in the face of hostility? Don't focus on the hostility. Embrace being a stranger in exile and, and look forward to the world that you've been created to live in. We're not made for this world, focus on that. And, and, and as we do that, we do it together. So when criticism comes, when offense comes, when persecution comes, we go through it together. See, the church is meant to be kind of an ultimate society. It has always been meant to counter culture and be a, a, a counter-cultural place that, that lives differently, looks differently, and points to Jesus. And so how does this community look? Peter gives us five words, and they'll be on the screens there. First, he says, like-mindedness, or live in harmony. Be like-minded. Be sympathetic. Care for one another. Love one another. Be compassionate. And the last one might be cropped off there on, if you're online, be humble. And you'll notice I've, I've built the slide this way behind me specifically because there's, there's some grammar going on here. Peter's writing in what's called a chiasm. You don't really need to know what that means. But what it, what it does mean is that these words point to the one in the middle because the thing in the middle is the most important. Okay, so like-minded is important, sympathetic is important, humble is important, compassion is important. But all those things steer us towards loving one another. Depending on your translation, it might say brotherly love. The Greek word there, we don't often head back to the Greek unless it's important, but the Greek word there is Philadelphos. This sounds a lot like Philadelphia, and we all know that the city of Philadelphia is known as what? The city of brotherly love. That's what we're talking about here. That's what he's talking about here. So the church as a counterculture community is supposed to be a place of support and refuge. Who doesn't need more people around them that live like this? And who doesn't need more living like that in their own lives to help support other people, right? 
if you've been uh, tracking through that 2022 Bible reading plan that we put out, I know there's at least one that was up to date last week, right? There's at least two of us, which is great. And if you're tracking through, you would have read John 15 this past week, which really is where Jesus starts this. This isn't just something that Peter's telling us to do, but he goes back to Jesus. John 15, I love how the message paraphrase puts it. Verse 12, Jesus says, This is my command. Love one another, another the way I love you. This is the very best way to live, to put your life on the line for your friend. That's what we're called to, as the church. It's interesting, and it's beautiful, that Peter feels free to take really familial language, family language of brotherly love, and, and even compassion, and apply it to the church. Nobody else would have really have done that this year. Or at this time. And ultimately, he's pointing us back even to the beginning of the letter. Remember how First Peter started? It opens up with a greeting of Peter, the apostle, writing to these churches, and then he launches into just this beautiful welcome. And he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth. He's made a new family into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the dead. He's given us and, and brought us into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And you usually don't get an inheritance unless you're in a family, right? And if you're you're born, you're usually born into a family. So Peter's really hitting us from all sides. Family, 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 family. When we start to follow Jesus and, and welcome him into our lives as Lord and Savior, as, as leader and rescuer, we are part of a new family. We, we are adopted into this family. How we follow Jesus it was never meant to be an individual relationship, just me and Jesus. That's something that, that our individualistic culture has forced into the text, but it's not here. Now, some of us might say, well, listen, Sean, I know uh, you're talking about new family, but my family's pretty good. Why do I need a new one? And I hope that's the case for all of us. But let me tell you this. This family that we're being adopted into is even better. It's designed to be even better. Look at those words again. Like-minded, sympathetic, compassionate, humble, and loving one another. And this family, as good as your earthly family might be, this family is led by an even better father. And it's led by Jesus, the one who is willing to die an unjust, cruel, and violent death just to show his family how much he loved them. How much he was willing to go through so that we could have life. Others of us might be saying, hallelujah, praise the Lord, a new family. Now the Bible never calls us to outright reject our family, although that sometimes ends up being the case. But it does welcome us into a new one. And there's something there's something really special about this family because it's not just here. And as we run two services, it's not, well, we have the second service family and we have the first service family. No, this, this is a global family and it's amazing. Uh, over the years, our family and myself and my wife had an opportunity to do a couple different mission trips uh, and it, it's such a beautiful thing that where, wherever we've gone, Wherever we found other Christians, right away, we're like brothers. It's just the family. 
whether it's I, I, I got to go to Nicaragua while I was in school and, and, and help build build a thing there and it was instantly adopted into the pastor family. Whether it was is Mexico, whether it was in, in Africa, it's amazing that as we're united around Jesus, so much of that getting to know someone's stuff it just gets thrown out of the way. Oh, we're brothers. We're such a team. It's amazing. Now, this family won't always get everything right. right? We're, we're not perfect. I am not perfect. I will not always get those five words right. I will get them wrong. I will hurt you. I will let you down. But I'm trying, and we're trying. And by Jesus' strength, and by his help, we trust that we are growing in compassion and sympathy, caring for another physically, emotionally, and spiritually. That we're growing in a, in a deep, familial love. And often when we read brotherly love in the text, we, we focus on love and less on brother, but Peter wants us to see the family language here. We're growing in humility as a, a key core characteristic. And, and much like today, in the first century, Humility was seen as weakness. It was even to your shame if you were humble. It was an inability to defend your honor or your reputation in the community. But we've got texts like Philippians chapter 2, where Paul writes for us, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation in love, if there's any fellowship with the Spirit, if there's any affection and mercy Make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or, or conceit, but in humility consider others more important than yourself. Everyone should look out not for his own interests only, but also for the interests of others, and adopt the same attitude of that of Christ Jesus. Again, Jesus is our, is our model, and so humility is one of those key characteristics. And the last one is, is like-mindedness or living in harmony. And I want to just, just pause here for a second. Because sometimes when we hear, say, we have to be like-minded, we think that that means we all have to agree on everything. That's not the case. That's God is an all-powerful God, but that's just not ever going to happen, right? We're all created unique, and so we will never all agree 100% on everything. We don't have to. That's not what we're called to. We, we will disagree on some things. Some of the things we'll disagree on will be trivial, as of who you hope is winning the Formula One race right now, or, or, or what hockey team you cheer for. These, trivial as they may be, there are right answers to these things, though, and we can talk about that later, and I'll pray for you if we disagree. Some of them, though, are more significant, right? Like, we, we can disagree on, on school choice, and parenting decisions, parenting styles, and how to spend vacation, how to all, we can disagree on these things, and that's okay. We might even disagree about some of the things that the Bible says, some of the secondary or tertiary issues in the Bible, and that's okay. But what it does mean, what, what like-mindedness does mean, is that we are united around a common goal, around a common mission, and that we agree on the main things, and we try to keep the main things the main things, and we're all headed in that direction. At Trinity, we've said that our, that our family goal or our mission is to see people transform into fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. 
We believe that, that our only hope for a life of meaning and purpose and value and fulfillment is found in following the teaching of the Bible and in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and submitting our lives to his authority and his call on our lives. We believe that it's, it's only Jesus that can truly heal our souls, that can truly heal our relationships, our marriages, our finances, our longings, our desires. And we said we want to see the glory of Jesus fill the Bow Valley. You know what, what drives this? Here's how we kind of came to this as well. According to the most recent census data that I could find, which I think was last year, it was published in the, in the Outlook, so it's pretty good. The resident population, so resident population, of the Bow Valley is about 26,000. Okay, so we've got Canmore is about 16,000, which is higher than I expected, to be honest. Uh, Banff is about 8,300. The MD of Bighorn is another 1,600. Okay, so 26,000 people in the Bow Valley. Someone's checking my math there. I think it's close. Close enough. Close enough for where we're at. Now, keep that 26,000 number in mind. In Canmore, we're one of six churches, give or take six, maybe seven churches or groups that will talk about Jesus on a Sunday. We may not theologically agree with all those other bodies that talk about Jesus on a Sunday, but if we set the bar at talking about Jesus as Messiah and Son of God, I just don't want to give too many. Six. Call it six, maybe seven. Banff is probably about the same. Okay? Add those together. Somewhere, let's say, we'll be generous. In Canmore and Banff, call it 12 to 15 churches. I'm not aware of anything in Desmond or Exshaw or Lake Louise, which we're going to pray for and call part of the Bow Valley, even though the numbers aren't up there. 12 to 15 churches. If we were all the same size, this is an assumption for math's sake, it's not the case. We have about 100 adults on a Sunday at Trinity, 15 to 30 or so kids. Again, for math's sake, let's call it 125 people on a Sunday. If all those churches, all those 12 to 15 churches, are the same size, that adds up to about 1,875 people in churches on a Sunday morning. Keep 26,000 in there. Now, every Sunday, typically, we have between 5 and 15% out-of-town visitors in our congregation. We love you. We're glad to have you here. Knock at least 10% off that number. So now we're under 1,700 people in the Bow Valley in a church on a Sunday morning. So we're back then up to math to just that 6.5%. Be generous. 6.5% of the population is in a church on a Sunday morning. A pastor that I've learned from a ton, a ton over the last 17, 18 years probably. I can't tell you how many times I've heard him say, we are willing to do anything short of saying to reach people for Jesus who don't yet know Jesus. And I just keep hearing it in, in podcasts and books and, and messages that I listen to. Anything short of saying to reach people who don't yet know Jesus. So let me offer up a big, hairy, audacious goal, a target for us, to see 1% of the Bow Valley on a Sunday at Trinity. 1%. Now I know I can see the wheels turning in a couple. It's like, okay, Sean, we're in a building project, and I know how many chairs are supposed to be in there, and there's not enough. Essentially, 1% of the Bow Valley at Trinity on a Sunday. 
you know what happens when we let me back up a step. Imagine the change in our communities with one percent following Jesus in a church on a Sunday morning. Imagine the relationships healed, the marriages healed. I like I'm heartbroken by the number of my eight year old classmates who came to the church already. Heartbroken. Imagine the marriages that can be healed, the lives that can be changed, the, the lives that, that come here to visit and, and wonder want to experience all the things, but maybe they meet Jesus instead. 1% of the bold hours at Trinity every Sunday. And you know what happens? You'll see how this actually is tied into the text. You know what happens when we become so laser-focused on 1%? Like-mindedness happens. You know what all of a sudden doesn't matter when we're laser-focused on 1%? all the things the church is known for bicking amongst ourselves apart. Who cares what music we play if it's helping us read, reach the 1%? Who cares what color the carpet is unless it's helping us reach the 1%? Who cares what color the walls are unless it's helping us reach the 1%? Who cares what programs you run as long as they're following Jesus if they're helping us reach the 1%? Who cares what translation of the Bible we use as long as it's legitimate and it's helping people re reach the 1%? Right? and hostile towards us, we live as a community that loves one another as family. We carry one another's burdens. We carry one another through offenses. We live with compassion and humility and like-mindedness, and we walk through this together so that a watching world looks and says, there's something about that group of people. We should check it out. How then do we relate to the watching world? That's how we relate to each other. How do we relate to others? Well, verse 9. Peter says this. He started out by saying, be like-minded in all these things. And he says, and now don't pay back evil for evil. Don't pay back insult for insult. But on the contrary, give a blessing since you were called for this so that you might inherit a blessing. Peter's instruction on how to live with a world that is suspicious or hostile starts here in this verse and carries on for another chapter. But he kind of really hits us with the punchline right off the top. Now, I think it's fair to say that for probably all of human history, our natural instinct has been, if you do evil to me, I fight back. I'll give it right back. I deserve that. Justice, the justice needs to be meted out, and I'll do it. Now, especially even in a, in a first century culture that Peter was writing to, where, where it was a much more honor and shame culture, it was expected that if you endured evil or if you endured insult, you would fire it right back. Because when you did that, it wouldn't be just to satisfy your own thirst for vengeance. It would also defend your honor and your reputation within that honor and shame community. And I don't think we're all the way there today with such a high regard as honor and shame as, as, as the Middle East or even maybe a, a, an Asian culture might have today. But I think we're getting there. We're moving there. We're trending that direction. It, it seems to be that it's more and more acceptable that if you offend me, I am encouraged to fight right back and give it right back. But that's not what Peter calls us to, is it? He says, in the face of insult and in the face of evil, in spite of all those natural instincts welling up inside of you to give it right back, he says, don't retaliate. Bless. 
And this isn't just a grit your teeth, bar your teeth, clench your fist and say, God bless us, because I want to, it's not that. Instead, he's calling us to, to act rightly towards that person, towards the person that has just offended us. And in doing so, we break the cycle of offense that just keeps spinning, would otherwise keep spinning and growing and spinning and growing. Now, in that culture, the culture that Peter is writing into in, in Greek culture, in this language, the language, the words he used here means to publicly speak well of someone. That's hard work, isn't it? If you have found out that someone is, is, has committed some evil towards you, is insulting you, is slandering you, is gossiping about you behind your back, and you know this, you, you, it's, it's the truth, you know what's happening, how hard is it to speak well of someone in public? Pretty hard. I think, right? Maybe, maybe it's just for me. Anybody else? Easy, hard, hard. Okay. Here, here I thought I had more work than I thought to do on myself. So that's a high bar. But we don't live in Jewish culture, or sorry, we don't live in Greek culture of the first century. Even at that time, in Jewish and what became Christian culture, to bless someone meant to invoke God's favor on them, to look at them and say all the good graces and mercy that God has, I want that for you. And I will ask God to give it to you. That's even worse. That's even a higher bar, right? I can maybe muster up some kind words when I've been insulted. But to, to want from the deepest recesses of my heart God's best for someone who has just taken it out on me, that's hard work. But that's what we're called to when we're offended, when we're called names, when we're slandered, when we're gossiped against, we instead pray that God would grab that person's heart and would unleash his grace and mercy on them and they would be transformed by his love and the truth of the gospel. This is the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts. That's not natural for me. Here's the thing, you you, you cannot bless someone that you hate or that you have hateful feelings for. I'm not even sure that you can pray an honest prayer for someone that you hate. You can say a lot of things. They may not be good prayers. We let the Holy Spirit transform our hearts and we say, God bless them. And like, like Peter said earlier, and showed us through Jesus' example, he entrusted people to the just judge, and that, that sometimes God will take care of these things. Again, Jesus is our example and our substitute when we get this wrong, because we will get this wrong. And he models a better way for us. Again, Peter described it for us back in chapter 2. He pointed us to Jesus, that we were called to use the same language. You were called to this life, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you in an example that you should follow in his footsteps, he didn't commit sin, and, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. That's our example. That's our model. That's what we are called to do as well. This road is a hard one. It's going to cost us, but it's the blessed way. And we know that it's the blessed way because we know and we can see how God responded to Jesus living this way. He gave up his life. God raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand, and gave him authority over 
ที่ไทยจากสิบหกที่เราอัลเซอร์เอารู้ adopt the same attitude as Christ Jesus who existing in the very form of God didn't consider equality with God something to be exploited instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant taking on the likeness of humanity and when he came as a man he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death even death on a cross For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that's above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what we're called to. That's how we live. That's why we live. That every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Finally, why we do this? We'll kind of rip through these last little bits. Peter takes a passage from Psalm 34, which, uh, if you look at Psalm 34, it's one of the, the few psalms that we actually have a, a full kind of setting and title for. It tells us about this time where, where David acted insane so that he would be left alone by a king. The time in David's life where he was called to something, he'd been anointed king, but Saul was still king, and Saul was kind of coming after him for that, and so he had to he had to live as an exile. He had to fight sin, and he had to represent the Lord. And Peter kind of takes this text from from Paul. Peter takes the text from David's cries and applies it to our life, starting at verse 10. He says, "For the one who wants to live life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil." We obtain that that blessing, that good life, a little bit now, in part now, but we look forward to the future when we will get it in full, because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. So, how do we live in a world that's skeptical at best, suspect at best, hostile at worst? We treat one another as family because we are family. There's no place within this family for bickering or fighting or dissension. Some firm conversations, some hard talks, perhaps for sure, but instead harmony and sympathy, compassion, humility, and love. Because we all pull in the same direction to point people towards Jesus. And when we're faced with evil and insult, because it'll happen, we muster up all the fruit of the spirit that God is building in us—all that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and especially maybe self-control. And we bless. We ask God's best to come upon that person. We break the cycle of our of offense. In all this, Jesus is our example. And in just a minute, we're going to take communion, and this is the time where we get to reflect on Jesus' work for us, on His example for us. We get to to look at His work on the cross that that offers us living hope, and new life, and adoption into His family. If you've never accepted Jesus as leader and rescuer, as Lord and Savior, you can do that now. I'll pray with you in a minute. We'll pray together in a minute. We'll offer up one of those prayers. If you've been following Jesus for a short time or a long time, this is our chance to, to kind of pause, take a breath, and to thank Him for His work. Thank Him that we have His blessing to look forward to. Thank Him that the gospel is at work in our hearts and in our lives right now as well. We thank him 
but he's willing to lead us. And we ask him to continue to transform our lives to look more and more like his, so that we can show him to others around us as well. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity that we have to be together. Thank you for this text. Thank you that you have called us to something so much greater than ourselves. Thank you that you have, have, have called us to be family, true and better family, family that, that, that is characterized by compassion and sympathy, by unity, encouragement, by blessing, by love. I pray that you would, you would really stir in our hearts and work in our lives to understand our status as members of this family, as sons and daughters of this family, King Jesus. As we turn to the communion table, Jesus, thank you for your example for us. Thank you that you came and, and clothed yourself in humility and clothed yourself in humanity. And you showed us how to live out these teachings, these principles, how to rightly relate to God and to creation and to one another. I pray that you would reveal the ways that we have, have fallen short of the standard, not to heap guilt and shame on us, but to to convict us so that we might see them and repent and turn back to you. And would you continue to work in our hearts and lives so that we would look more and more like you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.